This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Red Round Globe Hot Burning, a tale at the crossroads of commons and closure, of love and terror, of race and class, and of Kate and Ned Despard, by Peter Leinbaugh, with a foreword from David Lloyd. On February 21st, 1803, Colonel Ned Marcus Despard was publicly hanged and decapitated in London before a crowd of 20,000 for organizing a revolutionary conspiracy to overthrow King George III. His black Caribbean wife, Kate, helped to write his gallows speech, in which he proclaimed that he was a friend to the poor and the oppressed. He expressed trust that, quote, the principles of freedom, of humanity, and of justice will triumph over falsehood, tyranny, and delusion. And yet the world turned. From the connected events of the American, French, Haitian, and failed Irish revolutions, to the Anthropocene's birth amidst enclosures, war-making global capitalism, slave labor plantations, and factory machine production, red round globe hot burning throws readers into the pivotal moment of the last two millennia. This monumental history, packed with a wealth of detail, presents a comprehensive chronicle of the resistance to the demise of communal regimes. Peter Leinbaugh's extraordinary narrative recovers the death-defying heroism of extended networks of underground resistors fighting against privatization of the commons accomplished by two new political entities, the USA and the UK, that we now know would dispossess people around the world through today. Red Round Globe Hot Burning is the culmination of a lifetime of research, encapsulated through an epic tale of love. Red Round Globe Hot Burning, a tale at the crossroads of commons and closure, of love and terror, of race and class, and of Kate and Ned Despard, by Peter Leinbaugh, with a foreword from David Lloyd. Out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. The war on terror has come to definitively shape every corner of American life. Its pervasiveness is one key reason that it feels so inevitable. In 2001, all but one member of Congress, Representative Barbara Lee, voted to authorize the war on Afghanistan, and so many of the wars that then followed. This is the definition of hegemony, something that's normalcy and rightness is so assured and presumed and unquestioned that alternatives are almost unspeakable and even unthinkable. And as my guest today, Mohammed Mahmoud Uld Mohamedou explains, it's not just that the war on terror has warped American and European politics and society. It's that the war on terror and Islamic terrorist groups like ISIS have become mutually critical facets of a larger, more total global geopolitical order. In other words, 
the terrorists and the national security states waging war against them are both dependent upon one another, and together they have created a more violent, divided, and alienated world. Mahamadou's analysis is remarkably incisive and extensive. It's also, I want to insist, incredibly urgent. Almost nothing has been as consistently and universally misrepresented as terrorism and the war against it. The impacts are everywhere, but the recognition of that is almost nowhere. Before we get started, my experiment keeping most requests for your support short and sweet has been working well so far. Keep those contributions coming in at patreon.com slash the dig, and I'll keep it that way most of the time. We need those of you who can afford to contribute at patreon.com slash the dig to do so so that we can offer all our episodes for free to those who can't afford to contribute. Plus, we'll send you left-wing book swag in the mail. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Mohammed Mahmoud Uld Mohamedou, the author of A Theory of Isis, Political Violence and the Transformation of the Global Order, from Pluto Press. He is professor of international history and chair of the International History Department at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. Previously, he served as Mauritania's Minister of Foreign Affairs. Mohamed Mahmoud Uld Mohamedou, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. One of your core arguments is that mainstream assessments of ISIS overemphasize the group's religiosity. You argue that, quote, the organization's declarative religious identity is one of adornment and secondary to its more consequential social and political nature. Explain your argument and why you think it is that standard assessments tend to limit themselves to this sort of pseudo-scriptural interpretation, or failing that to simply publicizing and beholding incidents of sadistic violence, and what impact this superficial standard of assessment has? The reality of it is that the religious reading of Al-Qaeda first a couple of years ago and then the Islamic State has in vast majority uh, chosen to uh, see the religiosity as the main element. And in so doing, an analyst and in time a policymaker sort of embarks on a particular trajectory where increasingly there is less and less investigation of what precisely is the value and indeed the reality of that religiosity, um, which I argue is in large part theatric. Now, it is quite obvious that both Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State are radical Islamist movements. This is their ideology. They're not communists. They are not anarchists. Their ideology is precisely of a religious extremist radical nature of a Salafi jihadi type, and that is quite obvious. But it seems to me that uh, both academia, and that's more problematic, and policy making that's just a prerogative, uh, in indulging that reading uh, soon enough and very early in the post-9-11 sequence have, in effect, closed the door to seeing that the politics behind all of this, 
the movements themselves, the context in which they were born, the social precisely and reality of all of these elements in which they played out is a much, much, much larger undertaking um, historically too than that which is simply going to have us focus on their statement about restating the Khalifat or inviting this or that particular uh, component of their societies to abide by this or that particular um, jurisprudence. And I think that this is essentially, um, in effect, reductionist. At the end of the day, if one has to make a call, then mine is that these are fundamentally political movements. As every movement in the history of political violence, terrorism, can use the term interchangeably in that sense, there is such a thing as terrorism, and the political nature of the movements, which do instrumentalize the religion of Islam, obviously, is what should be of interest and has not been uh, as much as it should be. You make a really sharp point along these lines. You write, quote, to understand Western terrorists of the 1970s, such as the German Red Army Faction or the Italian Red Brigades, one is invited to examine the societal conditions of post-war Germany and Italy, the ambient malaise in these countries 25 years after Nazism and fascism, and their relationship with their rebellious youth. To make sense of al-Qaeda or IS, one is asked to read the Quran. This is an important point that you're making that because of the context of colonialism, we read objectively similar behavior, actions, through radically different lenses. And if I may say so, I think this is the Achilles heel of all the terrorology of the post 9-11 world, that you have this, and it's so ironic, double standard, analytically, academically, that for the good part of two or three decades in the studies about terrorism, that we were rightly so, invited to look at all of these social and historical dynamics in post-Holocaust Germany and post-fascism Italy to understand these youths rebelling against their societies. There's a book out there called The Children of Hitler. The lineage is quite straightforward. And that violence, the punishing of those societies, comes straight from a generation rising, going through that, and choosing to use an exact violence of a radical, terroristic nature on their societies. And we study that that way. Comes around radical Islamist movements, and we are therefore invited to shift, suspend that social and historical reading, which is of a scientific nature, and look at the scriptures of a specific religion, thereby obviously insulting 1.2, maybe 2 billion people or so around the world in their faith as we try to reconstruct it and, and have this kind of a, a theological uh, readings, uh, developing all manners of, of sort of self-appointed experts on the religion itself, and more importantly, taking us down the road of culturalism and indeed, soon enough, racism. Racism by way of saying against Arabs and Muslims, but the issue of races is more complex here. But the idea fundamentally that you have is that, in fact, precisely using that social and that historical and that political reading to understand what took place with these two movements could be a more fertile way and certainly just as valid as looking at the, the religiosity, which again, I think soon enough is demonstrated to be theatrics. It is not because 
Mr. Baghdadi says that he wants to do this or that, that I should take that for granted. As an analyst, I should take that step further and see what is precisely the context. And the immediate context is the invasion of Iraq. And it is the authoritarianism of Saddam Hussein. And in his 25 years of war in that country and the violence that comes with it and the depredation, on and on. And I think those elements, though mentioned, are quickly set aside And all of the discussion soon enough remains about religion itself. These dominant interpretations of of ISIS, you write, take place at the nexus of journalism and so-called national security state expertise, which also, as you just mentioned, involves a lot of pretensions to religious expertise on Islam as, as well. And they take the organization's propaganda very much, including its spectacular violence at, at face value. And the result, you argue, is a form of technocratic anti-knowledge, a sort of analysis that ascribes irrationality onto others so that the Western analysts don't have to rationally think about those others. What are the deep institutional forces that produce this anti-knowledge and that have made deep contextualized analyses of ISIS so rare? I think we're at the heart of the matter right there. I think this is the reason why I wrote the book, which is a reactive book. I think that the frustration, uh, the book is an excuse. It's the ISIS story is there. I give you as detailed as possible, I think, the the saga itself. It closes a series of of three chapters on the first on 9-11 and the second one Al-Qaeda. So you do have kind of that element, and I think it, it serves that purpose. But what really drove it and why I waited a couple of years into the ISIS saga that starts in 2014, as you know, and only wrote it in 2017-18, is because I felt, uh, I, I had hoped that that which we went through in the post 9-11-03-04-05 would not be replayed. And then as the years went by, I was struck by how much of that sequence was being replayed with some old timers and with some newcomers and exactly in the same lingua, the same phraseology, the same empty rhetoric. Frankly, um, 90% of the literature on Al-Qaeda and ISIS, with all due respect, is absolutely useless and will not be used in the next 50, 60 years by the students of international affairs. Manufacturing consent, disposable knowledge, it is all there. And the reason why, as I said, is that academia has failed policymaking and journalistic, um, mainstream journalistic readings took over. And these are two different things. Policy is a policy and, and, and the media is doing something else. And, and none of them is going to give us the, the ability to read and look at the deeper issues. So what are the deeper issues to your question? The fundamental issue here is the question of international relations that are fundamentally Eurocentric in nature, that have produced a canon for the past century that we study in a certain linearity. And that comes itself, and then there is plenty of work on that, telling us how much of that has been racialized, how much of those readings have had a certain power structure behind them. So by the time we come to the terrorist attack of 9-11 in 2001, then what will be brought to understand that is at best going to come from a tradition which itself has only recently started being questioned 
about its Eurocentric nature. I'm thinking about the Robert Vitalis's work and the John Hobson's and, and, and other deeper criticism in the societal aspects, the writings of someone like Chris Hedges or David Talbot, people that are push, pointing out to the connection between societal dystrophies that are to do about how a democracy functions and how it sees its relation with the rest of the world, matters of foreign policy, matters of state building, uh, and that is what's missing in that discussion. Most of the books about AQ and ISIS tell, will start, as we were saying, from the religiosity aspect, from the so-called perennial troubled Middle East, soon enough t- telling us about the Muslim mind, uh, on and on. And so what you have there is... It's a land of ancient conflicts. Invariably, ancient conflicts, uh, uh, people that are, have been at each other's throats. It's the kind of things that we, we heard about the Balkans in the early 90s when the post-Cold War conflict started, which was a war of succession. And I think this kind of reductionism uh, is one thing. So we can see it. You, 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 your listeners uh, can, can, can see through that and understand the logic of it. But what I'm more concerned precisely as an educator, is that I see a whole new generation coming and in effect, they have a hard time sort of bypassing the narrative that is so powerful, so strong. And so the the inevitability of drinking the Kool-Aid is going to be such a challenge for most of them because it comes so powerfully around them. And also, and that is one of the other things that I used in the book a lot, with popular culture with novels and films where this is distilled um, in, 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 in slow motion, in powerful uh, statements that, that make it to their understanding of how the world is constructed. If a student goes to school and goes through that in the evening is watching Homeland or The Hurt Locker or something like that, there's a certain kind of processing, uh, consciously or unconsciously, of who is a Muslim, who is the guy or the woman next door or far away? Who is an Arab? Who are these people? What are they? And, and, and why is this happening? And as this is immediately read in that way, then it becomes very difficult to bring the intelligence, the nuance, all of those matters that have to be brought and the complexity of this. And obviously, these groups are terroristic. I have no issue with the fact that the complexity of the term terrorist should not be an impediment to our understanding of it. But the call is for a a nuanced and more, I'd say, detailed, erudite, dare I say, because that is also a lot of it is about dumbing down, understanding of, of these processes. And obviously, this has been missing. And it has to do with what you mentioned, because of a strong power structure that has mixed the military, infotainment, academic uh, industrial complex in ways that are propelled further in the next uh, decades in the manner that the ISIS story gave them a platform to do that. You seem more frustrated by the state of the academic research and less so about the state of journalism and politics, perhaps because you expect better of academia and you see journalism and politics to, to, to serve power in a more straightforward manner as, as they do. <laughs> Don't hold that against me. Um, and, but, it, but, I'm, but you're right. It might be a misplaced um, optimism. Look, I believe in, 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 in the, the, the nobility of the production of knowledge in, in, the, in, the, in, the tr- in a tradition, a universal tradition that, that, that actually is there to help and inform and provide keys to understand in the critical thinking kind of way. The best, what I try to do with my 
my students and is to simply replicate the good professors that I had and those that invited critical thinking and questioning. And that is a commodity that is disappearing. When it comes to the to the media, I I, I mean I I'll be I'll be straightforward. I think that I certainly good important investigative journalism that can change and has changed history now and then uh, is increasingly rare. One has to go out and look for outlets that are themselves fighting the system in that way to get a voice and and to survive, as you very well know, when it comes to these things. So it's not a matter of having necessarily sort of lower expectations of, of journalism. Is that is the power of what we were describing as an industrial sort of, of infotainment thing that starts, let's say, in the early 90s when all of these big Foxes and MSNBCs and CNNs and take over the world in that way that we get these snippets of understanding and and as a result of that and that's my point you do have academics that then make it to that uh, uh, exchange and provide those interface moment with that which is expected to go there and start talking about the deeper issues that are about history and foreign policy and construct of these matters then one is definitely going to be not necessarily speaking the language of that media. It's not even a conspiracy. It's simply, I think, purely, unfortunately, ignorance uh, of the dynamics. But there is a lot of very good work out there. As, as you know, a lot of people are doing very interesting uh, work in, in many of these sites. And one can get their daily dose of news properly, if, if, but it, it, it means a lot of research. And, and for one Michael Moore out there that is going to present uh, something that is refreshing on 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 Trump or whatnot. You have a lot to navigate through that is going to be so divisive. And when it comes to ISIS, uh, we have and 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 generally all of these issues. There's been such a kind of a a heavy download uh, onto this particular generation that there's a lot of unlearning that is necessary. It's so remarkable that there is this intense struggle that you're involved in merely to assert that IS has political and historical context, let alone any of the particular arguments about what that context might be. Is this depoliticization of terrorism related to the rise of neoliberalism, whereby certain key features of political life are declared outside of the political? Or is this primarily rooted in earlier colonial forms of knowledge or, or both? Yes, I think this is a very important point. The the politicization, depoliticization cuts across both both ways. And in the book I, I try to work with it in the following manner. I think that the the the, the environment, the the corporate environment, the liberal environment that in which this whole thing plays out has essentially been working to depoliticize anything, uh, to get the politics out of it, to or to rewrite the politics in a way that they are so basic and understood in, in a linear way in terms of in very Manichaean ways, good and bad, and do this, do not do that. And that serves also the securitization aspect. And, and in, in, in that sense, any complex politics that points to the nuances, maybe to the grayish areas, to the need to rethink something, um, God forbid, uh, questioning oneself uh, on both sides of that fence, whatever the fence is, all of that becomes problematic. It's a bug in the system. The system does not function that way. And it needs to simply be uh, a, a digital system, zeros and ones. And, and that's how uh, the, de- the, the depoliticization functions to that. And it has pretty much succeeded, unfortunately. And, and, and what's interesting to me is how 
This is going to play out in the next couple of decades. I always say to myself, what will terrorism look like 50 years from now? And I think it will certainly be a, a type of political violence that will be against what I was just describing in terms of pushing back against it. And it will come, obviously, from the heart of the Western metropolis, not necessarily from these faraway places going through all of these conflicts, which at some point will, will, will die down one way or the other. But the politicization also is something that the groups themselves have been bringing about, that is, in Al-Qaeda, actually a bit more than ISIS, was speaking a language of political violence, making speeches, sending messages, talking foreign policy, extending truths, all of those things that, in effect, are part of the classical portfolio of terrorist organizations seeking to uh, use violence and to... Al-Qaeda declared war. Twice, 96, 98. I mean, this is very interesting that people wake up in 2001 and say, why do they do this? Well, they said they were going to do it. This is very important in terms of, of having... I mean, we're back to Sun Tzu, you know, understand who your enemy and what they're doing and why is this coming? And that's, that's, that's the obvious failure or manipulation of the Bush administration, and it gets worse with the Trump administration. But what the point there is if you have someone chewing the work for you and telling you what their beef is in effect, that is actually from the policy perspective quite a step that could be used in terms of understanding what should be the choices for, for society and working with that. But the other aspect of, and I said with ISIS, we, we see a downgrading. ISIS is less political, much more basically violent than than uh, Al-Qaeda was, and it has to do with the profile, bin Laden versus uh, Baghdadi. I, I, I call one the aristocrat of terrorism in the book, and the other more like of a street thug. And I think that that kind of downgrading is something we see a lot in, in second and third generations of terrorist movements, that there is this more radicalization, less polit- politics as such. But 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 that that aspect is, is is certainly there present in terms of this liberal, imperialist kind of uh, moment in which we find ourselves. And I think that the drivers of that are are at the heart of the violence. Uh, and and this is why. The subtitle of the book, The Transformation of of Political Violence itself, I think is very important in what I think will be the legacy of ISIS uh, in the next phase, in in what we can think of as the post-ISIS moment, uh, so to speak, where that element of an anti-system kind of of legacy uh, will be even more problematic uh, to that system that's simply a conflict in the Sahel or in the Levant or on the shores of Somalia that simply could be dealt with by drones and and, um, and techno-new wars as such. Al-Qaeda's declarations of war stated quite clearly why they were launching the war, but ironically, the very act of them launching the war, the spectacular violence of the September 11th attacks and, and the prior attack on the, the USS Cole and the offshore in Yemen, Yemen yes. correct? These very acts of violence and the very way in which they are received in the U.S. end make those very articulate declarations of war illegible. And you write that this anti-knowledge isn't just structural, but that it is also reproduced through practice by being acted upon in a ritual manner. Quote, every time a new radical Islamism-related attack takes place, a ritual of denial of the deeper political issues plays out in an increasingly similar fashion. It seems to me this this enforced reactive ignorance is touted as being tough and even realistic about terrorism, which is contrasted against those sorts of analyses like the one we're engaging in now, 
that would be characterized as making excuses for terrorism or offering an apologia for it. My question is, what is it that the immediate media spectacle surrounding a specific attack does? So, thank you. The on the on the first the the first point, I think it's important precisely to as as you were alluding, uh, insist all the time that to explain um, is not to rationalize. It's not to justify. Uh, it's merely to try to understand, to understand scientifically. And I think that has been shrinking more and more because generally in terrorism, because of the nature of, of the deed and the violence and the killing and the kidnapping, the, the emotions take over that very rapidly, um, which is strange because when you're looking at matters of studies of genocide, of armed conflict generally, the same kind of questions are not asked of those uh, researchers that can essentially look at things that are far more sort of lethal uh, as such. But it has to do with this kind of intimate aspect, which is precisely now to your second point, manipulated um, in, the fo- in the manner that it, it puts a, it kind of uh, creates the contours of, of, or delimits the contours of the discussion uh, in, in ways that are themselves political. That, that is rather than simply trying to see where this is coming from, what is motivating, and as we were saying earlier, is this about religion or is this about politics? Is this about something else? What part of this is, is a psychological thing? What's the part of dispossession? Uh, how is this matters of simply personal trajectories? Trying to have kind of a composite picture that is based on complexity and nuance so as to precisely um, dare I say, move towards a closure of that as opposed to reading this as inevitable and permanent as such, which is the paradox of all of this discourse that is, is it, it, see, it says that it is combating it and going to war against it, but at the same time is constantly presenting it as inevitable. Uh, whereas if it is political, if it has issues, then certainly something can be done uh, to bring this to an end. It doesn't necessarily mean engaging with it. It could simply doing something unilaterally that makes the phenomenon obsolete, that it no longer has a reason to exist, and that working on oneself, so to speak. And the reality to, to your second point in terms of how the, the ritual itself uh, is that we see also a trajectory, and I think we need to historicize this a little bit from the 90s to the 2000s to where we are. In, in a lot of this plays out in slow motion in the 90s, but no one is paying attention. This was sort of the, the, the nonchalance decade, I, I call it in an earlier pay, uh, piece, where we basically are going through this, particularly the U.S., and then we wake up after 9-11. After 9-11, a lot of what you described seems to me was a choice. Um, that is that uh, specific policy actors, very, very well aware of what bin Laden was doing, what Al-Qaeda, the policy issues, the conflicts, the embargo years on Iraq, the issue, the fact that Al-Qaeda was basically, as everybody knows, an Afghanistan-based entity has nothing to do with Saddam Hussein and, and the connection with 2003 were absolutely fake and, and uh, uh, etc. But there was a sense that a narrative was going to be constructed. Uh, Hollywood is quite guilty there very early on, and the New York Times reports this, I think, in an October 2000 piece. There were meetings with screenwriters that basically were going to sort of create this kind of a very nationalistic moment uh, in terms, or rather to, to bandwagon on the nationalistic moment, which materialized anyway, um, and, and move 
that way. What is more problematic is that 15 years later, you have essentially a second generation that has taken for granted that narrative and has more difficulties reconstructing it. Time passes, data is not necessarily available, although paradoxically it's there more than ever in our age, and no one is doing really the homework, as I said. And so you run with statements like essentially, you know, these um, theological readings, these bloodthirsty people, these religiously driven, and you work with these categories at the highest levels. Again, at the highest levels of the, the sort of the most brilliant minds. And this is also, as, again, as I said, ensconced in, uh, in the arts. Read uh, Peter Moray's recent Islamophobia in the novel. You see how, for instance, the, sort of that whole dramatization uh, finds its way in the relationship between narrative and power. We don't need to go back to Saeed about that. We all know how it functions. And just to finish on that, I'm struck by, for instance, in terms of the criticism that has long been part of the, the United States in a large part of its intellectuals has been missing. I mean, where is the big film, let's say, critical? Where's the apocalypse now about Iraq? You don't have, where's the big novel that actually questions yeah. that whole thing? We don't have it. We have, we ha- you have to look and a few things come to mind. But I'm struck by someone like Coppola films Apocalypse Now, three, four years after the 75, at the end of the conflict, right? Literally. And here we've been 15 years and there hasn't been one big question. I mean, what do we have? Again, as I said, the Hurt Locker, which is basically rationalizing the CIA's torture. In the Valley of Elah, small stories, personal stories, but you don't have a grand statement about the drift, the post-Cold War, uh, post-rather 9-11 securitization, the evolution of these things. And I think that's the kind of debate that we are not having or having in islands, in pockets, um, in isolation well, of a, each other. A political corollary to... To what you're pointing out is that there hasn't been an anti-war movement in the U.S. since the mid-2000s, and that was always mostly against the Iraq war. The opposition to the invasion of Afghanistan was incredibly small. Yes, absolutely. Uh, although I should say that I think, uh, and, and maybe that's what's missing in my point earlier, I think because things need to become with this generation more personal, you see that with the whole Trump era, there is the beginning of a movement uh, where people are pushing back here because their identity as women, as Muslims, as Latinos, etc., are more and more directly attacked. And in that sense, you get a sense of this kind of pushback, in, 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 which is almost defensive because it's gone mm-hmm. so far in, in that sense. But you don't have something that would have been an elevation, which is me, for instance, walk, being involved in, in, a, in a struggle that doesn't immediately concern me. Uh, I don't know, Jewish Americans going to fight for civil rights in, in the South in the 60s. You know, this was a moment where somebody could go beyond their immediate uh, personal issues and make a statement about how they viewed their society and, for that matter, taking chances uh, with it with their lives, as it were. And I think that that kind of, uh, as you said, the big uh, the, the absence of a movement, the absence of a national debate, uh, the absence of inspiration by the arts through the arts um, has been increasingly missing. I'm reminded, if you would, in terms of the 
responsibility of a society, if one could say, of the title of a, a public enemy album, which is how you sell soul to a soulless people who sold their soul. Uh, in effect, you get a sense mm -hmm. that this becomes very difficult to speak to a type of society that is itself very much has self-numbed in that way. Though there is this political awakening right now in the U.S. not to get too far afield around kind of a, a nascent democratic socialist and social democratic politics and the real challenge. And that's very exciting, but it's very domestically focused. And the challenge will be to link those domestic issues to an international geopolitical ones. To go back to how this starts, I think there's also choices that were made by, for instance, uh, liberals. Uh, right after 9-11, um, you see uh, what what someone like Nathan Lean calls today in his book about Islamophobia, liberal Islamophobia, which has really gone quite uh, forward recently. You, but you see in, in the early phase, you see people who would you have traditionally associated with a certain progressist view, someone like Christopher Hitchens comes to mind, for instance, right, that starts uh -huh. speaking in terms of identity and and gradually, or a comedian like Bill Maher, essentially uh, getting in all manners uh -huh. of conversations with Sam Harris that are increasingly, in effect, basically racist about Islam and Muslims. And, and that creates a space there where you ask yourself, is this a, a, the, the way to go forward when clearly a terrorist attack raises for every single society around the world questions about its policy, about what it's doing, and how to address that? And, and, and it, it is very interesting because not everybody at that time was, uh, was uh, going that way. Um, I was struck, and I quote this in the book, again, back to the pop culture element, that, uh, that there's a very interesting subterranean uh, metaphor, it seems to me quite obvious, that someone like George Lucas is doing in the first, um, the prequels of Star Wars when he's literally writing this 02, 03, 04 about the fall of a republic. And he's in effect answering what the, to, to the Bush administration, what they're doing as a, to, to go back to his language, as a fall in the dark side. And he speaks about how essentially his characters are going to go towards their doom by going down that road. And pop culture, if ever, uh, at, at that level of a Star Wars type, gives us an indication that the, these issues right then and there, 01, 02, 03, when Abu Ghraib is happening, when torture is being rationalized by Harvard scholars, all of those things are taking place at a moment which will be studied 50, 60 years from now as a moment in the early 21st century where the United States was unable to essentially deal with the trauma of the 9-11 attacks as a terrorist attack and adopt the, the type, I think, of reaction that could have avoided the drift into securitization that we are going through and which I think is still deepening uh, and might even get worse in the next decade. Before we move on, I wanted to ask you about the terrorists' own role in producing this anti-knowledge we've been discussing. Do, do you think bin Laden ever recognize the irony that the very spectacularity of the high-profile attacks that al-Qaeda launched invisibilized their underlying political rationale, which were ostensibly the ends to which the attacks were a means? I think it's very interesting. I think bin Laden was probably taken aback by the magnitude of, of what took place. I think 
it's the fall of the towers, not the explosion. I think that changed everything. It's the literally the image of this uh, capital of the West, the center of the universe, essentially being in that way kind of decapitated. I think that he did not necessarily expect that. I think that what he tried to do in many ways was to do something in terms of terrorism completely novel. Uh, and I think it had to do with the period. I always say that Al-Qaeda could not have materialized in 84, 74, 54, but in 94, throughout that decade, globalization allowed it to become the transnational movement it wanted to be. So there was kind of a perfect storm there between the vision and what, what the environment uh, was enabling already. But I don't think that uh, he um, was completely, I think, uh, in command of the consequences uh, and that's my point about earlier the reaction being important. What you do feed into the, the management of a conflict. And I think by going so maximally, the United States, not just the Bush administration, I mean the society and the intellectuals and the world with it, subsequently Europe following suit and on and on. As we all entered this kind of past 18, 19 years or so, we went into a moment in history in which essentially I think it went far beyond the wildest dreams of, of bin Laden. And I think the next couple of years were going to be anticlimactic for him all the way to his disappearance. Even within his movement, what is being celebrated, although ISIS is always very careful not to say anything negative about bin Laden, they don't mince words about Zawahiri, but when it comes to bin Laden, it's kind of, you know, untouchable in that sense. But what was left out with an entity like the Islamic State and all the regional franchises is more the modus operandi, what he enabled, this dissemination of a certain mode of uh, spreading the, the so-called enemy and, and militarizing terrorism and transnationalizing it. That's what the children of, of uh, Al-Qaeda took from it and used it in their own specific ways. And paradoxically, uh, if you follow that uh, argument, you get into a contradiction of Al-Qaedism by uh, the Islamic statism, shall we say, in which they ended up doing something like... Um, to bore Lord of the Rings phraseology, to the far, from the near to the far enemy and back. Kind of very interesting re-territorialization, which was precisely what Ben Laden did not want to do with his movement. And so in that sense, I think that it not necessarily was a case of him losing control of his game. It's just that he gradually became obsolete to his own movement. And somehow that's not something that was problematic for him. I think there's a speech somewhere where he says that he, I have to become irrelevant to my own movement. So I think he kind of embraced that. And by the time he was far away in Waziristan or where not, I think that becomes kind of a, of a, a legend to his own movement as opposed to someone who will insist, like many of the 1970s terrorists, uh, about the, 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 the organization doing it his way and, and being more ego-driven, as we've seen in the history of, of uh, terrorism. The term terrorism is at the center of this dynamic of obfuscation. You write, quote, The primary subtext of the IS discussion is that terrorism today is largely serving the purpose of naming Islam as an enemy without actually naming it. I think that's right. But what I would add is that now with Trump, Islam is indeed being named increasingly. And this argument reminds me a bit of a conversation that I had on the podcast with Khaled Bedoun, 
and which I'm making use of in my current book that I'm finishing up, which is that the loud subtext of Bush and Obama's war on terror was always Islamophobic and thus laid the groundwork for Trump being openly Islamophobic. How do you see it? Yes, I would agree with that. I think it's the it's the logical continuation of that. And it's we can extrapolate that it is actually kind of a a rule that the unsaid, if things degenerate and if things are dumped down, as we said earlier, will become spoken. But it would take someone to be gutsy in an evil way, like Mr. Trump did, to actually say it. The moment Mr. Trump said that there should be a ban on Muslims, he was elected. The ability to go in that way and say the unsayable marked the end of a moment of what you were referring to, which is in the early phase of having that subterranean subtext, which in, in somehow is more hypocritical. To his credit, at least, Trump is speaking that which he believes. So it makes it more sort of straightforward and easier to deal with and to counter in that way, as opposed to an obviously uh, anti-Islam global war on terror, but which insists on calling itself the global war on terror, but the FARC, for instance, are not uh, concerned or ETAO is not concerned or whatever remains of IRA or, or the, uh, any other entity that is not of an Islamist nature. And the fact that the dominant terrorist groups of the 90s are radical Islamists doesn't change the fact that the policy itself was from the beginning geared in that way. As you know, he uses the term crusade three or four days after the 9-11 events and then backtracks. Uh, that is Mr. Bush. And then says Islam is a religion of peace and goes to visit the mosque. And hosts uh, Ramadan iftar uh, throughout those years. So there is that. And, and uh, as we know also, the fact that the White House has to sort of navigate its, its, uh, its cozy relationship with Saudi Arabia makes that even more difficult. Although I should say, and that's another component of the discussion in the book, is how that whole narrative, and I'd like to insist on that, is not merely a North-South. It is not a Western thing simply. Ha the whole securitization narrative has been adopted and adapted uh, and, and replayed in the global South by all of the authoritarian leaders that you see across the region now, um, from your Sisi to your Saudis to your uh, Emiratis, you see a lot of this replaying across in that, that, that generation. I'm not even talking about the earlier ones, which was there to begin with the Mubaraks and the Ben Ali's and the Assads. And I think this makes it more difficult now because it actually makes that whole system, um, in effect, interlocked from north to south uh, and taking out the intelligence and the politics and the, and the issues that we're discussing in the first part from that and simply speaks a language of uh, policing. And therefore, you would see the same patterns. And that's why the analysis in the last chapter looks at this notion of the need to rethink, to back to your question just now, the whole notion of terrorism in, in connecting the dots in relation to how neighborhoods in Brazil are being targeted in a militarized way, how neighborhoods in Marseille are targeted in that way or in Liverpool, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's, for me, is going to be the legacy of all of the elements. And if I can say, because you're also asking about this from the point of view of a, a Muslim author myself, it is very interesting to see how 
um, that discussion is always not expected from us, that you get a sense that there's a, um, a very interesting quote by Saida Qureshi a few months ago in the London Review of Books, in which she writes that the curricula, for instance, of uh, generally of books and, and commentary, assume that white men write about universal truths, uh, while people of color are only expert in a narrow field, usually having to do with their questions of identity and heritage. So you're called as the expert that will speak about the issues in, mm-hmm. in your regions and get that kind of uh, native informant kind of understanding of these issues. But if there's a larger reflection about, as I said earlier, the history of international relations or these political dynamics and how knowledge is produced, it is there is less... Um, of an audience for that, generally, of course, uh, than any some other, the musings of any other person of power that is assumed from a Eurocentric perspective. And I think that is also part of those, the invisible benchmarking of this conversation, which goes back to how terrorism itself is understood and associated with specific entities and, and religion. You make the point that there's this obsession with getting inside ISIS to see what makes it tick behind the scenes. But but you argue, I think, quite correctly, that to understand the inside, the so-called inside of ISIS, we must also look just as much outside of ISIS so as to understand how all sides of this conflict are asymmetrically but deeply implicated in each other and creating this larger totality. Yes. And that's why ISIS is different from Al-Qaeda, because it takes the logic inside out and is itself, by the way, a, uh, impacted by that so much so that it becomes a hybrid by 2016, 2017. By that, I mean that, um, uh, so to, to the first part of your point, studying the specifics, the history inside the gang, inside the, the cult, all of those books that tells you this kind of sensationalist thing. I penetrated the, the, the network. This is how they live and so on. This kind of a very sensationalist kind of approach, uh, which sells very well, is nonsense. First of all, it's not academic work. Then it is essentially opinion. And thirdly, all of the data that is presented is is absolutely very sketchy to begin with. And and even if that is telling a story, so so what's the point? The point is that these guys are dangerous and, and bloodthirsty, but we know that. We know that the moment we see Jihadi John beheading somebody, that's beyond the pale. This is barbarian. This is violence. That's not the discussion. The discussion is why are we here in the first place in 2014? with having a second-generation Kuwaiti from the UK traveling to the Levant, taking part in a conflict he knows nothing about, dressing in orange jumpsuit somebody to make reference to uh, Guantanamo and uh, enacting a barbarian uh, ritual uh, while talking essentially uh, apocalyptically about that. How, how did we get there to begin with? And that's the kind of questions that are not being asked. So what ISIS does, in effect, in, 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 in linking that... Uh, objectively, uh, that's not Baghdadi's plan. It just so precisely by inviting these people to come, by visiting violence to all of these different places, by taking Bin Laden's game to the next level. What this ends up doing, and and I think this is for us now the big question mark in the next phase, it, is that it has landed all of this into a place of hybridity where looking at what is playing out in the metropolis is going to be as important, if not more, as I insist, in the next phase as what you have in, say, Mosul or um, 
Reqqa or, or, or in, in, in Derna, in Libya, whatnot. And that, that's going to be the easy part, how these uh, conflicts uh, in the periphery evolve. They'll be solved or not, they will persist. Uh, but what's going to be transforming in places that are suburban, that are Western, is going to bring a sort of a back-to-the-future logic. I speak a lot about the 70s in the book, where all of these tensions point racially and ethnically uh, and culturally are coming back uh, in, in the United States and, and elsewhere, in France in particular as well. And it is, uh, you mentioned this earlier and I didn't respond, it has a lot to do, obviously, with the post-colonial legacy. But it's a post-post colonial legacy in that way, that, that it's, it's moving forward with this generation that knows nothing itself about its own post-colonial history, but, but carries it nonetheless because it has been stigmatized a la Kuwashi brothers, for instance, or others uh, in, in that fashion. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney, with a foreword by Angela Davis. How Europe Underdeveloped Africa is an ambitious masterwork of political economy detailing the impact of slavery and colonialism on the history of international capitalism. In this classic book, Rodney makes the unflinching case that African maldevelopment is not a natural feature of geography, but a direct product of imperial extraction from the continent, a practice that continues up into the present. Meticulously researched, how Europe underdeveloped Africa remains a relevant study for understanding the so-called great divergence between Africa and Europe, just as it remains a prescient resource for grasping the multiplication of global inequality today. In this new edition, Angela Davis offers a striking foreword to the book, exploring its lasting contributions to a revolutionary and feminist practice of anti-imperialism. How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney with a foreword by Angela Davis. Out now from Verso Books. As you're pointing out, in reality, there are no clear lines of division. Everything, in some senses, everywhere. But both the anti-knowledge and the conflict itself are driven by what Franz Fanon called, quote, the fundamentally dichotomizing nature of colonialism, which you say has begun to be replayed in remixed ways. Al-Qaeda, you argue, developed this new ethics of responsibility, whereby Western civilians were responsible for the actions of their governments and thus legitimate targets of violence. On the other side, as President Bush put it, either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. It, explain your argument about Fanon's argument about this fundamentally dichotomizing nature of colonialism and how it is that the West and ISIS together helped to co-create a transformed geopolitical dynamic of transnationalized violence. I can think of no better analogy than the one of uh, 
remix or actually sampling. I think we have to borrow from music here and, and of that type of music where a sound is being sampled and put on a different beat uh, and it has echoes of that melody or that sound while actually adding other aspects of it, making it a little bit more uh, fleshed out in different ways and, and usually uh, more syncopated, more aggressive and, and so on and so forth. And I think this is exactly the sign of our times. I think that if you were to do this in imagery, it would be a collage, it would be a montage and it would be a frenetic one. And I think that is what happens in that second sort of phase or rather the early 21st century writ large, whereby the experience of this, in, the violent interaction of the Western uh, imperial and colonial policies of the 20th century, which had led relatively linearly to some sort of moment that we call decolonization um, in the 60s and 70s, um, and was celebrated as, as the end of something, but was really never the end of anything. It simply continued um, in, in slow motion, and the cast was changed, and uh, all you had was a post-colonial state that, for its faults, replayed the colonial game vis-a-vis -vis its population, a neo-colonial set of dynamics that was dominating the economies and the social interactions. And by the 80s, these new states realized that they had very little to do uh, in terms of that. But the violence was missing directly. You had sort of conflicts here and there, and all of that was under the, the big mantle of the, the Cold War. And so you had kind of, you can think of the post-colonial moment, right, 60s to 90s, let's call it, as a um, an interregnum um, um, to 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 use a, um, a, a phrase in that way, and you have a sense of that whole 9/11 moment being not so much the beginning of something, but simply I think kind of the uh, a way station that came rather logically on the heel of all this sort of policies that the United States had been conducting, and that somebody like Bin Laden decided to put together a motley crew of transnational terrorists to strike back at the heart of the metropolis, as he said, and take it back. And when, and in so doing, it kind of opened a new moment, which combined that now with a new generation that had been living in these, in these uh, colonial, uh, former colonial powers, is going to be looked at by their own societies in the colors, literally, skin and flag of what they uh, had once been as colonized. And to a lot of Muslims, for instance, this was very, not immediately a scene. There was a lot of shock about the nature of the policies, but the depth of that reading, the depth of, of this alienation, I think only comes now with this current generation. That is the generation, the 9-11 generation being born is, I think, looking increasingly like the 1970s re uh, uh, generation that, that rebels uh, against uh, that the previous one in in realizing that it is that it is only read in that way and that it is limited in that cultural way and I think what they're doing therefore in watching these videos in being tempted by that violence those segments amongst them of course um, is ending up simply echoing those 
experiences, but playing them on a mode that is the one they're familiar with. And I think that explains exactly why the modernity of ISIS that I discuss is so striking, their videos and their use of, of literally the so-called chants that you hear that are it's kind of a hybrid religious chant and rap and... and uh, Nashids. Uh, yes, the Nashids, exactly. And how much of that is becoming sort of, of a new culture. There's a, there's a component there that is absolutely not present in what Bin Laden was doing, which is basically more characterized by a new type of terrorism in its method, in its modus operandi, but not necessarily in its essence. It's actually quite classical in, in, in that sense. What you have here is something literally hybrid in the literal definition of hybridity to partake of two different qualities you know no i don't know part tree part water you know two different materials that are actually mixed in that sense and to that i think that to understand that movement one absolutely had and we did not do that too much but we can still do had to look both internally and externally in this kind of you know um, strange combination marriage a uh, perfect storm moment of all of these historical societal dystrophies. IS has these Hollywoodized videos, just this massive, very attuned to the, the broader globalized culture video production, this appropriation of hip-hop culture, whereas Bin Laden really had these sort of solemn scholarly lectures. Exactly. That's exactly it. You see that, that that's that's a... That's the that's one of the most visible sign of the evolution of the movement itself, because it is a movement. They're connected, and there's a lineage. You see also the generational aspect. Yes, I mean Bin Laden was taping 45 minutes VHS tapes, <laughs> FedEx <laughs> to Al Jazeera. I mean, who remembers uh, VHS uh, being FedEx to Al Jazeera? Who would receive them in uh, Doha, Qatar, and you know, and play them? And that's what we were experiencing in the early 2000s. Now compare that with these kind of you know files put in on a on a daily basis, on a in, in, instantaneously with all manners of of high quality, super slow motion Hollywood withized editing, you know, 4K, some of them, I mean, some of them with drawn aerial views. It is very, very sophisticated in a way. Obviously, the technology has evolved. That's one thing, right? And 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 Zawahiri has a kind of a cyber discussion in 2008-9, if I recall already, as, as a transition moment. And there's a magazine that is done by one of their followers, Al-Awlaqi in, in Yemen. It follows the evolution of the technology. But the real novelty, and this is this is the incestuous relationship between East and West here that we're describing, is that a lot of that experiences comes from those kids that also come to join and come to influence. And therein lies my, my, my final point about this discussion uh, in terms of its evolution. It is that at some point, and that's why ISIS had such an accelerated lifespan, four or five years versus Al-Qaeda, 20 years. At some point, all of those external influences coming from all over, from Europe, from Minneapolis, from, from Canada, from Chile, at some point from Marseille, all of those kids coming had inevitably to influence, institute the movement by being there, by having these exchanges, by having these disagreements about strategy, about what should be done, about what should be targeted, about what this is about, what their experiences. There was going to be an experience uh, in situ that at, in time was going to transform that movement that in 2010 
Baghdadi coming out of jail wanted to activate one way and was changed when the Syrian conflict took place and he wanted to sort of also capitalize opportunistically on that. So a lot of that whole story is about improvisation, is about crisscrossing influences. And all of that is the stuff of today's culture and and globalization. There has been, you write, a quote, solidinization of Islamist violence, a, a mechanism whereby individuals could easily remake their own lives into mythology. You argue that al-Qaeda and IS have served as platforms for individuals to make themselves into warriors in a way that makes a clean break with both the post-colonial Arab state and the post-colonial metropole. And you use the word platform, I think, quite intentionally because you write al-Qaeda, quote, successfully Uberized bottling of the new terrorism allowing for the creation of of these franchises all over the world. And then IS not only created its so-called provinces, or what it calls its franchises, but also this incredibly flexible and adaptive framework through which these so-called lone wolves can act in the organization's name. Explain this process and what al-Qaeda and IS's specific innovations were and what the key contexts were that shaped them. Al-Qaeda's focus was most on the organization itself. Um, the term itself, the Al-Qaeda, the basis in Arabic, was clearly something where you could see that the guys in the driving seat, Bin Laden, Azam initially, the Wahiri, um, all of the second tier, the Khalid Sheikh Mohammeds, all of those people, had essentially a sense of a design and to amass a soldiery around that, literally. And they did that through a casting system. The Hamburg cell fit a particular type of profile they needed to have, which they went looking for, literally, and they sent them on a on a, on a training mission. I mean, this is very interesting in the Contre Croisade, the first of all the, the, the trilogy, I call this kind of all of this being done in the open, that they are literally being trained. They get their visas, they go to Florida, they uh, they, they enlist into a, 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 a school, they learn how to uh, uh, um, pilot planes, and then they crash the planes. And they're doing that all along because someone is giving them missions. It's a commando. There's a book out there entitled Perfect Soldiers. They behaved in that very kind of disciplined way, and they had a role to play and for which they were cast, as I said. By doing that, therefore, what Al-Qaeda was doing is speaking more in the language of the firm, the organization, what Bin Laden was saying. There was, it was very hierarchical, very CEO type of a corporate uh, approach to that in the sense of the in being in control of the message. And he would send these messages every six months. The Wahidi would come every three months to reaffirm the, the, the mission statement. And that was very new, for sure, in terms of the history of terrorism, which had been amateurish and and not so well organized in earlier eras, but it was in that sense, nonetheless, a certain linear uh, approach. Jump now to with the Islamic State. The Islamic State is a a much colder entity. It doesn't really care about its uh, um, soldiery here. They invite them. They're very much about using them, instrumentalizing them in that way. But, and this is the, 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 the twist they give them a narrative which works, which is, this is about you. This is about what you can do and list, find here, and we will have these profiles in these magazines or these videos. 
see how, for instance, Al-Qaeda's videos were Al-Qaeda's videos, essentially. Moises Sihab, the organization of the clouds, was releasing all of these videos. What you have now, but they were the official line. What you have with ISIS is every single wilaya can release its uh, official videos, but also every single a member of the the group or sympathizer for that matter can also issue videos as they were doing staccato in 2016 and ISIS would actually echo that and to top that their news agency quote unquote would do that so the idea was to flood the communication uh, with a blitzkrieg that is going to put all of that stuff out there to serve the purposes the larger purposes that they had in mind and therefore These uh, guys and girls were in many ways, um, what's the word, uh, they were in effect expandable. They were basically someone that could be replaced at any given time. And I find it very interesting that they never really tried to keep those that wanted to go back, except the, obviously the, the, the girls that were in slavery. But they, whenever somebody would come and want to go back to France or to other, the, the door was revolving. The idea is that everybody could be replaced in that sense. And so the narrative was that you are going to have an opportunity to transform yourself and go back to whatever identity you lost and so on. And so you'd have these profiles in these magazines about Abu this or Abu that being in effect the better himself or better herself and so on. And that narrative is, again, a very modern, a very kind of a, a, a YouTube, Facebook, MySpace, uh, iPhone, all of those individualisms type of generation that functions because they speak to a gap in those identities. They speak to a desire to to change, to transform, to be an upgraded, to be an, an exoskeleton of yourself um very much in a comics type of, of, of logic, you know, superheroes and supervillains. Uh, and that's the kind of, of, of a moment in which these actors function. You write that IS provided, quote, a Marvel Comics-like narrative of the average kid character turned superhero or supervillain overnight. Can, can you say a little bit more about how IS so successfully reached out to so many alienated Muslim youths, particularly in Europe and maybe perhaps particularly in France? by connecting their experience in the metropole to the long history of war in the colonies? It, it's, it doesn't take much. It's, uh, it's not like it's a mystery um, that they were able to do that uh, in the sense that we'd have to find who exactly was the mastermind. You get sometimes some of these profiles, um, some of the German magazines did that, Der Spiegel and others, about this German rapper or this particular um, sort of... Uh, Uh, whiz kid, or there's a book there on the the architects of jihads and and all of those. I think that is also somehow, although slightly more sort of research than the literature we critiqued earlier, they're still in this logic of exceptionalizing the experiencing the experience as if you'd have to find that person that was also good at what they did that they were able to to influence, and that explains it, and that they fell into that. What's actually much more probable, uh, and it's conjecture, but it's certainly something that we can imagine, is that a lot of this came relatively naturally for a generation that is consuming this stuff precisely, this kind of opportunities. It is a generation that looks for opportunities 
to beef up their uh, identities to find ways that they would look better. This is this is the 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 other side of the coin of selling all of those dreams about ego, about improving oneself, about everybody wanting to be kind of a a, a, a superstar and so on. It's not so what different from what advertising offers. That's exactly the word I was looking for. That there is a certain advertising logic, and 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 by the way, that's also how ISIS in being a an advertising company for that doesn't doesn't really care for its uh, consumer that there's a sense of profit and the profit for them would be in this case the terror that they could accrue vis-a-vis the, their enemies but for those bamboozled into going along with that what they are buying is not so much dreams in this case but nightmares but as they do and go along with that there's a sense for them that this is what I'm going to take to rebel, to go against the oldest story in the world, to punish that society which did not want me or that I cannot be part of. The Manchester kid, where does he blows up himself? At a concert by Ariana Grande. Now, think about that for a moment. Is it the fact that he was in Libya, was there, was trained, was sent back to go to this particular place? Or maybe, possibly, we will never know somehow something in him, some sort of experience might have been rejected by that girl, might have been, you know, not taking in for that particular experience, but might be frustrated by those kids passing him by and going to that place where they're going to have fun. Very universal, basic drivers of frustrations leading to violence, leading to murder, as we have seen them around the world, across the civilizations. And to link that immediately to his identity, the fact that he's a Muhammad, the fact that he is a Muslim, the fact that he's a brown or black person, I think is the quote-unquote crime of this whole era that we have associated essentially a type of violence that is of a a, a postmodern, a commercial na- nature that is political and yes, does that take the form of an instrumentalization of religion, but that we have associated it in that way, therefore compounding the problem. And to make things even, I think, more interesting slash dangerous is that now in the next phase, anybody observing that or going through this will take the the, the legacy of that ISIS violence and take it to ways and, and a type of violence that may very well be Westernophobic or Islamophobic. It doesn't really make a difference. Look at the, the car ramming uh, uh, modus operandi in Nice right, uh, against Westerners, and then in uh, Finsbury Park against Muslims. My point is the personal aspect in the history, in the history of terrorism has always been there present. And that aspect has been missing in those discussions as well. What follows from this then is that we cannot tell the history of ISIS without also telling the history of, for example, French colonization and of the Benelus, the peripheral ghettos within which many poor working class immigrant descendant youth live in in cities like Paris. And we can't tell it without telling the story of a French national identity that actively obscures this colonial and post-colonial history. Can, can you say a little bit more about how, how Europe in general and France in particular have co-authored with IS this racialized and religiousized framework within which the disaffection of the marginalized can be articulated through terrorism, Islamist terrorism. And I know this is a major debate in France between two opposing intellectuals whose names I can't I can't remember. Olivier Roy and Gilles Kepel. Yeah, yeah. Yes, this has been I call it in an earlier piece the 
Saint Germanization of um, ISIS that is in reference to the Boulevard Saint Germain, which is one of the places in Paris where all of these intellectuals meet and have been discussing it. And this is very interesting because this basically goes to the ability of many of these uh, network uh, in France and elsewhere to turn international issues about local disagreements uh, about particular, in this case, Parisianisms, that particular thinker or that particular thinker. Um, in reference to what I said earlier about uh, Muslim and Arab intellectuals, what's also interesting is how much uh, Muslim or an Arab voice is missing in that, that you get a sense that you can speak about or to the subaltern, but he or she will not be part of that conversation unless they are cast in a way that will be either barking to oppose or being in an Uncle Tom kind of position to echo that. And both are detestable. Both are detestable to the intelligence of nuance and the, the need to come to speak to those issues or to that grammar. And that's, I think, the space that, that has been very, I think, crucially missing uh, over the past 20 years on very, very existential and very urgent matters of, of our world. So a place like France, I think, is, is the embodiment of all of this. Uh, as much as the U.S. policies are, in this case, problematic and linked to all of these uh, questions, the United States was not a colonial power. And in fact, in the 1960s, in the Kennedy administration can uh, have the luxury of adopting a position vis-a-vis -vis the new states of Africa and the Middle East and Asia in ways that are very much sympathetic to them. Although underneath that, there's also the, all of the interventionist operations and the Lubumba. And just to interject briefly, there, there's the past colonial experiences in in the Philippines and of course and, and Haiti Cuba. and of course yeah. there's yeah. the deeper uh, aspects uh, to that of course I mean I say not colonial vis-a-vis -vis occupation directly like France or the, uh, the uh, Great Britain were in the region and and there is not that immediate memory which I I do insist in the 1960s early on before the United States become associated with the imperialist na nation was a moment that that could have been navigated before it's very interesting ex post facto to think you know, had Robert Kennedy been elected, how this whole thing might have been played out if the nation had embarked on a different trajectory and adopted other internal dynamics and, and, and policies. But we'll never know. But for sure, the United States becomes cast as the imperialist nation, and, and we know what follows after that. But in the case of France in particular, there is, uh, and even more though, so than the other imperial power, the UK, there is a very... Um, problematic uh, legacy there, where essentially uh, both French state and society, for that matter, are in complete denial of a uh, colonial history that is very recent, that took not only an extended but a nasty type of embodiment, uh, all the way to the perfect example of Algeria being treated essentially as a part of France. Um, and the fact that in the 80s and 70s, uh, as I discuss in a chapter in the book, you have these kids that are essentially born as a first and second generation sort of subalterns in the banlieues indeed, uh, and are gradually experiencing uh, rejection by the society that puts them in these projects type of, of buildings and on the outskirts of society, and then speaks a language of assimilation to them and asks them to be integrated. That is the term of art that he used early on. But as that experience goes on, they are increasingly uh, left aside, both by the left and the right, and the right wing makes them 
very quickly their bet noir, uh, pun intended there, about their uh, type of uh, objectification in that sense. And when the whole 9-11 era starts, it comes slowly because it is still primarily a U.S. experience going global, but very rapidly with the first uh, set of um, riots that take place that are called the jihads of the banlieues, if I recall one such headline by uh, the New York Times, and gradually the association is made with those faraway issues and so on. And it becomes very paradoxically almost a um, self-fulfilling prophecy, which is by so easily associating these French girls and boys, <laughs> which is what they are, uh, and, 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 and talking to them and about them through the, their identities in terms of their race and in terms of their ethnicity and uh, their religion, um, their, a, a wall was built. And this is what you see the statements made by the people that come and attack later on and want to join uh, these groups uh, speak that language. But um, that um, experience being a social one, there's also a lot of their friends that grew up with them that may not be either West African or North African that are simply so-called, quote-unquote, white trash that grew with them. And those kids as well, destitute in the same way, will end up being the type of uh, kids that are influenced by the language of ISIS, the uber modern, violent, gamesy, video gamesy type of approach that we discussed. And that experience becomes then completely um, merged. They all become ensconced in that moment of rebellion and rejection against that society. And France has had a hard time dealing with this because it has obviously read that in religious terms, in ethnic terms, uh, and has not seen how to break through that. And the, the, the rise of the right wing uh, throughout all of this phase uh, made it easier to stigmatize further the, the, the groups. And as attacks uh, the individuals, rather. And as attacks piled up in 2016 with the Stade de France and then with Charlie Hebdo uh, and and uh, and a few other uh, attacks, individuals leading smaller attacks, um, it became more and more of an urgent matter, which the state basically uh, went to securitize in the manner they did. IS has lost its territorial caliphate, but you write, quote, for all their tactical importance to the group, the two cities, Mosul and Raqqa, were not crucial to IS's strategy. Where will IS and the war on terror head now, do you think? And what lessons can we learn from the effects of the so-called defeat of al-Qaeda? The main lesson uh, to be learned in terms of the, of the nature of terrorism, which is what I think matters to me, is that there's always going to be a, a two-step dynamic. One, which is the latest generation, the latest incarnation of the threat of terrorism is going to dominate our reading so much so that we only see that. Uh, again, it's hard for most people to remember that in the 1970s, you asked about a terrorist, who's a terrorist? And the answer would be a young Western European uh, left, extreme left-wing um, um, person. That's basically what it is at the time, bottom line, half red brigades and so on. No, the concept of a jihadi in 72, 73 doesn't register. Uh, on and on, uh, every new generation um, is the one that is so high in our minds that we don't see the larger problem, question, issue of terrorism uh, only on in those colors. Red in the 70s, green today, uh, to, to make the point. 
That is the first element in terms of how we have been obsessed by the religiosity of these groups as we started the conversation. The second lesson, however, is that that cyclicity is also uh, hiding a, a forward-looking movement of that modernity-driven type of violence that terrorism is, which is always contra the society to punish it one way or the other. And today we find ourselves in a period in our history, global history, where there are so many tension points within and across societies that that, that whole resentment seems to me that is going to be a platform, we used this, the, the, the word earlier, for the future type of violence that we will see, whereby, as I write, the flag of ISIS, for instance, will become more important than the ISIS, the group itself, that is the, the, the representation, the threat that comes by associating yourself with something that once existed, the memory of it, the golden age, quote unquote, of, of the occupation of Mosul, the four years and so on, will be such a powerful element and narrative. We live in an era with all everything's about storytelling and narrative will propel it in that way. Uh, and that being as it is, could be played anywhere around the world. It does not have to be in Mosul itself. It may well be in Canada. It may well be in Indonesia. It may well be in Lagos. It may well be in Brussels. And that is something that is essentially where I think the movement is heading. Its hybridity has taken it over. And yes, there will be continuities in the jihadi Salafi movement, and we might see a new entity born there, and I don't know, the... the the Islamist group of this or that in Mosul, that as long as you have an armed conflict, you're going to have those actors featured in it. But the larger story that ISIS was in terms of its political violence and its impact on the global order, I think is a transnational, postmodern, global story, still very much in the making. Its heyday was 2014, 2017, 18. But I think in the longer term, it will have a, a cast a shadow and the type of postmodern violence that we are still observing. Mohammed Mahmoud Uld Mohamedou, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Mohammed Mahmoud Uld Mohamedou is the author of A Theory of ISIS political violence, and the transformation of the global order, from Pluto Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig, from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after only somewhat correctly describing terrorism as a historically inevitable means of action, of which it was as useless to discuss as that of the earthquake at Chios. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's in iTunes or wherever else that has reviews, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing up and running even a few bucks is huge 